Well, if you have a Bible with you, uh, open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Um, I think it's on page 991, maybe 992 of the church Bible. I would love for everybody to be looking at a Bible. So if you don't have one of your own, uh, maybe grab the one in the chair, uh, underneath the chair in front of you, or on an app, um, phone app, or that sort of thing. If you don't have an app, but you have a phone, you could do a quick Google search of uh, Bible Gateway or um, Bible Study Tools or something like that. The title of the message is Men and Women in the Church. And I mentioned uh, that in this series on 1 Timothy, that there'd be a couple of passages where I would sort of slide into teacher mode. Uh, I did that a few weeks ago on the, the passage that dealt with the subject of uh, sexual immorality. And so this is the other of the two passages I had in mind, just because the nature of the content uh, just necessitates or at least urges us to sort of take it slowly and um, to go in some level of detail. And so I haven't really done this. It's not been my uh, custom to do um, a lot of this in the two and a half years or so I've been preaching, but these two are... um, certainly exceptional in that regard. But it touches on the subject of male and female roles and relationships in the church and whether there are any uh, distinctions between ministry roles that men and women may hold in the church. And so that's a, that's a delicate subject. Is that safe to say? That's a delicate, like I probably don't even need to explain. Uh, but it's a delicate subject for at least a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, because the, the, the whole subject of sex and gender is one of the most volatile subjects in our culture. And again, we uh, spoke to that fact just a, a few weeks ago. But we're living in what has been labeled the, as the, the Me Too era, if you you've, are familiar with that you know, hashtag or whatever, because of so many revelations um, that, you know, of women who had been uh, sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, just mistreated uh, by men and that kind of thing, but particularly the, the sexual assaults. And of course, all of those kinds of abuses, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and just mistreatment by men, all of those have been true in the church as well as outside the church. Uh, and, and of course, that is all, so that reality is then compounded by the fact that in our culture, uh, in some circles, there's even confusion about what a man and a woman are. Literally, uh, having confused the issue of how do you define man or woman. And so in that setting, wouldn't you want to be me right now? But, uh, but the, 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 second, the second reason I say it's a delicate issue is because even within our, uh, within our fellowship and sort of how this relates to and applies to the church, there's some kind of open-ended issues for us um, and differences of opinion about it and that kind of thing. So it has the potential to be a, a, what I call the landmine issue, you know, where if you if if you just walk up upon it carelessly, you get blown up by it. And so, so really one of my highest priorities in the way I'm, I'm trying to approach this message, um, and I actually, on my 
outline of this whole series, I allotted myself two weeks if I need it. And I actually will still do that if I need to. Um, So I'll kind of take this a bit as it goes. But one of my highest priorities is to say, hey, there's a landmine, don't step on it. Okay, that's, that's one of the big goals here today is to say, let's just identify it. And there are ways not to have it blow us up. And particularly, uh, the way we do that is that we uh, avoid misunderstanding or, or, or maybe by contrast to say, or, or conversely, that we achieve a level of understanding, right? And that we just resolve not to take offense. Now, that seems to be um, an undeveloped discipline in our culture these days. Uh, it's much more, you know, popular to take offense at just about anything and everything. But that's what we're after here as we, as we uh, unpack this subject. We'll do it again with some um, care and, uh, and attention to detail here. So we're in 1 Timothy uh, 2. That's su- sufficient introduction, verses 8 through 15. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand, as we customarily do, for the reading of the scriptures and just attentiveness to what God has to say to us in them. Beginning in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Father, it is always our prayer that you would make your word come alive to us. It is truth and it is life. And our souls are always in need of it. But God, we ask, especially today, that you would bring clarity, that you would give us ears to hear uh, what you have to say in the scriptures generally, but, but what you have to say to us individually and corporately this morning. So God, we're praying that you would do that. Would you minister to our needs as you know that we have them? Uh, Would you do that uh, graciously? And even, Lord, out of this, equip us to be gracious in our dealings with one another. So God, would you speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory? And we know that'll be for our good. Move me out of the way as always, Lord. And use me as an instrument to communicate to your people in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. You could say in a a very general sense that the task of interpreting the Bible, 
Um, it, it involves a process of answering three questions. I'm, I'm very, I'm way over general, generalizing here. There's a, there's a whole lot involved at times in answering those three questions, but generally speaking, we're always seeking the answer to three questions. Number one, what does the text say? Number two, what does it mean? And number three, how is that relevant to us? What does it say? Or in other words, when, we, when the scriptures were originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, how do those words and phrases get translated into English? Uh, we don't usually have to labor over that because we're reading it in English. Somebody has translated it for us, but somebody has had to make decisions about how to translate it. And sometimes it's not hard at all to determine, even in, you know, out of the original, what the text says. But that's always a relevant question. What does the text say? What does it mean? And then how is it relevant to us? This passage is uh, genuinely challenging on all three of those points. Um, there, there are real questions and difficulties regarding what some elements of the text say. What are the right words to translate in English? Uh, questions and difficulties about what it means and certainly about how that is relevant to us. I call this a thorny passage, right? I mean, there are some like this. In other words, don't, don't reach your hand in the bush too quickly and just try to, to pick what looks like that pretty flower off of it because you might need to, to prune some branches back or whatever or cut, you know, file some shave some thorns off of there before you reach. You just need, to, uh, you need to, to handle it a little bit more slowly and carefully. There are people who love the Lord, and this is, this is really important, I think. I might not represent this uh, fairly and accurately today, but, but it's important for us to understand. There are people who love the Lord and who love the Scriptures hold the scriptures in high reverence and handle them carefully, take them seriously, and who disagree about this passage. And, and that's, that's actually one of the things that's important to understand why I said, I mean, it's, it's a landmine issue, and one of the ways we can avoid the landmine is just try to at least understand that there are, um, there are people who really regard the Bible highly and yet come to different conclusions about Again, its meaning and its significance. And so we want to sort of unpack uh, this text just in sequence and notice what guidance it gives us regarding men and women in the church. And so we'll start um, right at verse 8. And I'll, I'll say I think what this tells us uh, is that, because it speaks to men and women, but number one, that men are to exercise spiritual leadership in prayer and godliness. Men are to exercise spiritual leadership in prayer and godliness. Look at what it says in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You know, having said in the previous section, if you were here, Paul said, essentially, pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. You remember that's essentially how verse 1 of chapter 2 is summed up. And that whole section of verses 1 through 7 is summed up. Having said that, now he applies it specifically to men. And notice his most basic desire here. Men 
I want you to pray. Did you, did you catch that? I mean, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. So don't miss the obvious, in other words. And it's interesting, I don't, I don't know necessarily entirely the context of this first century um, Ephesian church setting, but it's interesting how much that needs to be said to men sometimes. Men, I want you to pray. If you're going to be spiritual leaders in your home, in the church, wherever else in between, I want you to lead in prayer. It's easy for men sometimes to check the list that says, I have a chainsaw and I'm not afraid to use it. You know, that I can uh, do home repairs and things like that. By the way, check the list and turn it back in. We're, we're thankful that you can do those things. This is the reason we're asking. But sometimes it's easy to do that and it's real hard to make it to a prayer meeting for men in particular. Uh, that's, that's almost epidemic across the, the church in, uh, in many places in America anyway. So let's, don't miss that point. Men, I want you to pray. And of course, he says they should be cleansed of their sin, lifting up holy hands. It's not so much an injunction about lifting hands while you pray, although that would have been a common posture, but it's that let your hands be holy and that you would especially be cleansed of anger and quarrelsomeness. And that was likely a problem in the Ephesian church because of the false teaching we read about earlier. I mean, it's probably created an environment where there's just dissension and division and quarrelsomeness. And of course, men a lot of times don't need help being angry and quarrelsome. And so that's probably always good advice, a good reminder to men, hey, set aside the, uh, the anger or the quarrelsomeness. But Certainly there's a, a specific uh, command there to the men. So men exercise spiritual leadership in prayer and godliness. The second thing we notice in verses 9 and 10 is that women are urged to strive to be noticed for good works, not good looks. Uh, strive to be noticed for good works, not good looks. And that's a fair way of summarizing uh, what he says there in verses 9 and 10. Look again at it. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, um, th there, there does seem to be uh, something some sort of particular situation going on that Paul is addressing, right? In other words, that, that um, there is something here that applies to all of us generally, but we know because of the way the letter opened that there, there's false teaching and, and it's emerged among, uh, out of, from the elders of the church and so forth, that, there's, that things just aren't all together right there. And that's a lot of how the, the instruction in the, in the letter uh, is being framed. But it does seem like there's, that the part of what he's speaking into is whatever uh, the climate has been created you know, behind that. It's sort of like hearing one side of a phone conversation, right? And you, so you know something's up, right? You can hear somebody talking on the phone and you know there's some kind of conflict and you can maybe almost even 
get a sense from one side of the conversation what the conflict is. But not entirely because you're not here on the other side. This is a bit that way reading passages like this, actually reading the epistles in a number of places. Because he speaks to particular people on a particular occasion. There are reasons why he's written a letter. And uh, so sometimes we're, we, we don't really know entirely the other side of the conversation. But there is some research uh, that's been done about the Roman culture, just more generally, um, in the first century that suggests there was sort of a movement at this time. Um, and I, I can't remember if it, they even called it like the the new woman or the new Roman woman. But, but it was almost like a sort of a, uh, a feminist type movement, um, a, a women's liberation kind of thing. But the idea was that particularly among wealthier women, um, that they were sort of defying some of the traditional roles and that kind of thing. Um, in, in some cases, not, not wanting to have children and, you know, this, this kind of thing. And they were in the position if they were wealthier to be able to do that, and they would sort of wear it on themselves even. So you would, you would know uh, by even their physical appearance that they're sort of making a statement. And that's, that's probably something that's uh, going on here. As he mentions, um, gold, braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. Now, I'll say here, talking about sort of getting down to the weeds a little bit or clipping back some of the thorns, I mean, one of the things it's helpful and necessary to know is that when we read the epistles, there are ways in which we, read, we have to read them differently than we read um, other genres of, of the Bible. We read them a little bit differently. We do gospels different than we do psalms and so forth because they're written to a particular people and some, sometimes on a particular occasion. So part of the task of interpreting the epistles and, and, de and determining how do they apply to us is sorting through what is what we might call culturally conditioned. That is, what, what, what is he speaking to that really is just sort of a function of first century Ephesian culture? that would have perhaps looked different in even Jerusalem in the first century or in other parts of the world, that it was something specific about the culture in that part of the world at that time. Um, we, we generally, when in interpreting the epistles, say um, if the particular things like that we, we share in common, then whatever it is, the instruction he's given or the command he's given applies to us too. When you have the, the, the particular cultural things that are different in the first century than they are here, we don't take that as being a universal uh, command. So, for example, the point here for us is not about braided hair and gold or pearls. Okay, that's not, the, the, the takeaway here is not about the kind of jewelry you wear uh, or whether your hair is braided or not. And so if you were feeling any pressure about that, those of you who have any braids in your hair, let me just let you off the hook. That's, that that's not the message. Now, that's important as sort of just make a note of this concept because part of the challenge that comes with interpreting the passage as a whole has to do with what here is culturally conditioned that only applies in the first century and so forth and what applies universally. 
that's, the, that's sometimes the difficult task of interpreting uh, the, the epistles. And when we're really seeking to know what is God saying here? And, and, and do, need I underscore this fact that that is the question, beloved. With this passage and every one we come to, the question is, what is God saying here? Not how can I, how can I interpret this so that it says what I want it to say? Right, that's, that's always, there's, there's often a temptation about that. But what we always are really asking is, what, is, what has God said here? And then how do I bring myself into submission to it? But some things are culturally conditioned or whatever, culturally sort of limited or restricted, and other things are more universal and timeless. We would say here there is a message um, that, that would apply to uh, women of all times about uh, modesty in their appearance, about not, not striving to be known for physical appearance, but striving to be known uh, for their good works. That would be a, a, a good injunction, a principle for, for Christian women of all times in all settings to follow. But then number three, and where we really need to spend uh, more time, is in verses 11, 11 and 12, what Paul says is that women are not to be the teachers or rulers of the congregation. What he actually says is uh, women are not to teach or, or um, exercise authority over men. I've uh, sort of phrased that here. As rulers, teachers and rulers of the congregation, because the, the congregation includes men, women, uh, children, and adults, of course. But verses 11 and 12, again, this is where it's thorny all around. Uh, maybe this is particularly so. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's debate in this passage about what it means, you know, what it says, what it means, and how it's relevant. And so let me kind of uh, sort of model a little bit or sort of think out loud about uh, some of those questions. First of all, what does it say? And, and questions about that, debates about that, really revolve mostly around um, the Greek word that is translated exercise authority in the ESV that I'm reading from. Uh, if you're reading out of NIV, I think it says assume authority. If you have the King James, it says usurp authority. Um, the NASB says something like exercise or, or have authority, I believe. But, uh, but there's questions about what it, what's the right way of saying that? What, is, what does it actually say? This, this is the only occurrence of the word in the New Testament. The Greek word that's used here, it only appears here in the New Testament. And generally, again, there, there's sort of a, a guideline that says you don't want to base uh, your entire uh, theology, you don't, you, you don't want to hang uh, the whole weight of some conclusion on a word that only appears once in the New Testament. You, you look for testimony elsewhere in the Scripture to support that. So, uh, and you have to look outside the Bible to determine what it means. Because if it only shows up in one place in the Bible, uh, you, need, you need to know how it's used elsewhere in Greek culture, you know, and that kind of thing. So, uh, some, from that kind of study and that usage elsewhere, some people suggest 
the word here, it would be better translated domineer. Women are not to domineer over, women, uh, over men in that kind of way, be domineering. Take authority that doesn't belong to them, usurp, you know, those kinds of things. Others say exercise authority uh, is the right way to translate that, like it says in the, in the ESV. Well, again, there's actually, there, there's, people can, re, can do the same research on that word and still come to different conclusions. Um, if you look at the way the church in the early decades and centuries, really, um, used that word in their writings and the way they interpreted this verse, uh, they, they, they understand it to mean exercising authority. In other words, uh, the, the testimony of the early church would, would support the way it's translated here in the English Standard Version. That the issue is the exercise of authority. Women shall not exercise authority over men as opposed to uh, dominating or domineering. Um, but again, one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm tackling it this way is for you to appreciate some of the legitimate questions surrounding how we actually understand the text. You with me so far? Okay. We're still friends? All right. I still got time. No, no. But then, you know, so what does it mean and how is it relevant? I mean, what, what Paul says, apart from, again, some question about that word of, of, of exercise and authority, you know, what he says here, he does not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. Now, once again, here you, you get uh, debates among uh, New Testament scholars and certainly those who are just readers of the New Testament like you and me <clears throat> about kind of what's at issue. Some, some folks would say here that the issue that Paul's speaking to, he's, he's forbidding something in Ephesus because of problems that are unique to Ephesus. In other words, he, uh, they would say, okay, there's false teachers in Ephesus, um, that some of the women there have fallen sway to that, um, sort of succumbed to that, been deceived by it, and then even become participants in spreading it. And so the issue Paul is addressing is, is sort of restricted to Ephesus. And another kind of variation on that would be, again, in, in the larger Greco-Roman culture of the time, because of this sort of cultural movement that was going on, disrupting, um, you know, sort of authority structures or whatever, flaunting, you know, and that kind of thing, that he's speaking against that sort of first century cultural setting. So in other words, uh, they would argue, those who take that position would say that this prohibition against women teaching and having authority over men was related to a particular issue at that time and place, and it doesn't apply to us now. That, that would be the argument. Here's another way of saying it. They would say that's essentially in the same category as gold and pearls and costly attire. That it's culturally conditioned or whatever and limited to that time. I would say that the problem with that explanation as I see it is that Paul offers the reason for not permitting a woman to teach and exercise authority over a man. And the reason that he gives is not rooted in the particular circumstances in Ephesus. 
And it's why I wanted everybody looking at a Bible so you could see what your Bible says here. But he gives a reason, and the reason is rooted in creation. So look at verses 13 to 14. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, if those of us who are familiar with the Genesis account, you, uh, you remember that um, Adam was actually given the command, don't eat the fruit of this tree. Did you remember Eve was not even created at that moment? He, gave, he gives a command to Adam, and then Eve is deceived by the serpent. She's actually, interestingly enough, as, as she uh, answers the serpent, she's added to what God actually originally said to Adam. She said, yeah, we can't eat it or touch it. God didn't say touch it. But, but the point is, either Adam uh, didn't communicate <laughs> clearly what God had said. That, that's a real good possibility, I think. <laughs> that the man didn't communicate well enough. But he, either, you know, either he miscommunicated it, she misunderstood it or added to it or whatever. But the point is, she made a decision on their behalf, essentially. But the other thing you read in that Genesis account is Adam was right there with her. She's listening. She's making the decision. Adam joins in the sin, essentially, and the fall results from that. So my, my point is to say what, what, uh, what Paul's making reference to there is that. Um, not, not heaping a blame upon Eve any more than there's blame upon Adam, but to say the, the fall, the means that led to the fall was, uh, was that getting out of order. And Adam was the one charged with not eating that fruit. It wasn't Adam and Eve charged by God, although that certainly applied to both of them. You following what I mean by that? He was the one responsible for that, and he sort of relinquished responsibility when she made the decision and sin resulted from that. That's what Paul is referring to. But in other words, he, he's, he's grounding it in creation. And, and though it, it seems obvious that there are um, specific issues going on in Ephesus that Paul is speaking into, he addresses the particular problem with a universal principle, uh, as I understand it here. That's, that, again, this is why I wanted to say, open the Bible, let's look at what the Scripture says, let's talk about how we come to determine what it means and how that applies. And here's the, sometimes the hard work um, of biblical interpretation. But he addresses, he addresses the particular problem with a universal principle. So uh, imagine a scenario like this so we, so we kind of understand maybe what I, what I mean by that. Suppose you lost your job and uh, your family needs to move in order to take a, a new job, but your middle school daughter doesn't want to move and doesn't want to leave her friends. You know, she's going into eighth grade. It's a terrible time to move. And she doesn't want to move. And so you go to a friend and say, she is so upset. She is hysterical. Like, she, she does not want to move. W what should we do? Well, and that friend may say, uh, give her some 
good practical advice like, well, be a good listener. Um, be quiet when it's time to be quiet because she just might not be ready to receive uh, what you have to say. Maybe empathize with her. Maybe just cry with her. She's, she's facing real loss here. In other words, there may be just practical advice you give, but then that friend may say, but I don't allow a child to make adult decisions about what's best for the family. So in other words, uh, that probably is good parenting advice, by the way. Um, but there's a, there's a specific issue, and there might be some specific uh, practical ways to respond to the issue, but it's, there's, a, there's a universal principle that governs that. That is, parents make the adult decisions, not the children in the house. You, you under, you're tracking with that, the, the, the illustration there? Uh, addressing a particular issue with a, uh, a universal principle. I think that's what Paul does here in 1 Timothy 2.12 and then 13.14. That he's grounding the reason for this, this prohibition that applies to the situation in Ephesus, he's grounding in a, uh, a principle that reaches beyond Ephesus and beyond the first century. And so then how is that relevant to us? Well, and I, I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of s summarize this uh, hopefully pretty, pretty quickly here. But those who teach and rule in the church are elders. So the, the application of this, in other words, the, the, the way I, uh, again, the way I make sense of the way I make sense of this, the way I understand the scriptures to, to be speaking here. That those who teach and exercise authority, those who teach and rule in the church are elders. In fact, in the Presbyterian church, we call them teaching elders and ruling elders. They teach and they exercise authority. Um, that, that is sort of the role that uh, Paul is speaking to. So, so my understanding of this is, is that the office of elder um, is to be held by men only. That that's, that's part of the charge that he gives here. This is why I said that's a, this is a bit of an unsettled uh, issue in our church, even in there. There are good and godly people, as I described earlier, right here in our fellowship, uh, among some of our elders, even amongst some former pastors, you just have different understandings of that. And that's, okay, one of the things we love about being an EPC is our, our motto, um, that in essentials, we exercise uh, unity. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, Charity, uh, the, the issue of ordination of women is a non-essential issue in the EPC. We got some churches that do and other churches that don't. Um, but anyway, that, like I said, that's, that's what I understand Paul to be communicating here. I'll mention uh, sort of parenthetically, you know, I, I've shared, for those of you who have been here a while, I mean, I came out of a charismatic background. It's very most prominent probably in charismatic circles for there to be women, pastors, elders, whatever. I mean, there are no limitations on that. Um, I and actually initially set out to go to a, a more charismatic seminary by the providence of God ended up where I was at a Baptist seminary. I actually uh, was writing an exegesis paper on this passage set out to argue uh, that women could be pastors, elders, whatever. And I actually became convinced by my own study of that passage of the 
of the other view. That is to say, uh, my own understanding of that shifted um, out of study myself, but my urging would be to everybody uh, in our congregation to, to engage in that kind of study. You, you get into it and see uh, what you understand the scriptures to say. But, but uh, again, the sort of takeaway here from, from all of that in terms of its application is that um, the complementary relationship that God established between husband and wife in creation is timelessly embodied in the family and it's timelessly mirrored in the church. That is my, if you, if you want to say that's my conclusion or that's my thesis statement. In other words, because of the way Paul structures this, what he says and how he grounds it in creation, the implication of that, um, as I see it, is that the complementary relationship that, that God established between man and woman, husband and wife in creation is timelessly embodied in the family. There's always that complementary relationship, in other words, in the family, and that it's also mirrored in the church. So um, just to sort of conclude here, as I said earlier, we, we don't want to hang our whole argument, if you will, on this passage. It, it is, it's genuinely a difficult passage. I, here's what I would say. I think people who speak about this passage as if it's not difficult, I'm not so interested in listening to them. I mean, and, and I'm even less interested in listening to people who either, who either say, um, people who hold that what's, what's called a complementary, complementarian view, that there are still distinctions between male and female roles, that people who hold that are just, that's just a man-made religious thing that's not of God um, or whatever. I've heard people say that. I, I shut them off right there because I'm like, you have, not, you have not studied the issue here, have you? If you don't understand uh, what, what the, the opposing view, how somebody who holds the opposing view of something, how they would articulate that, if you can't represent that view fairly enough, you're not ready to talk about it with any, uh, you know, conviction or whatever. So we don't want to we don't want to hang everything on this this issue like like others really all others. We always want to interpret scripture in light of scripture. So we want to see what does the broader witness of scripture say um, about the issue of men and women in the church. Um, again, I would say, th there's disagreement on this level too. <laughs> People would say, when we read what the scripture says, what do we take away from that? We certainly know that Christianity elevated the status of women, for sure. Uh, it was that, that women um, had an elevated status in the church compared to what they had in the, in the culture at large, or what they had had historically. I do think the overall testimony of scripture um, supports the conclusion I've just given you. But again, I'm not going to elaborate on the whole uh, issue. I thought about bringing up two books to you uh, to show you. One that's called uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The other that's called Discovering Biblical Equality. So they, they it's entire books by, again, Bible-believing New Testament scholars who can take different issues on it. They're 400 pages or something long, each one of them. I can't give you 800 pages worth in one sermon, and you wouldn't want me to. But um, there's much more. In other words, if you're if you're really wanting to look holistically at the subject, you definitely need to look beyond this singular passage, um, because it is thorny and there are difficulties. And I think 
um, where our study ought to lead us, the more thoroughly you study this, uh, the stronger maybe your conviction gets, but the greater your humility gets about those convictions. And that's really my hope here, is that we would, at the very least, uh, sort of walk into discussions about this kind of thing, how, however and whenever they come up in the future, uh, with, with some understanding and with some resolve not to take offense because we understand. We might not agree, but at least we understand where people are coming from so that we're not going to take offense. Well, I'm gonna, I'll, uh, I'll just uh, sort of close on that note and, um, as I say sometimes, sort of tie a bow around this. I mean, one of the things that may be helpful to, to be reminded of is in the EPC, the congregation uh, elects its officers. They're not appointed by session or by the pastor. So I'm not issuing any kind of decree here uh, today. Um, but, like I said, there's a takeaway for us just to um, study and discover what, what has the Lord said, said, how are we to walk in that, and how can we do that together in a spirit of unity and charity. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful again for... Um, always thankful for your word. Thank you, Lord, for a fellowship that loves one another well. And, um, and has uh, so often been able to walk together in unity, even in things, uh, even in the midst of issues and circumstances that can, can breed disunity. We pray you'll continue to help us to do that. Lord, would you open our minds to understand with greater clarity this and other things that you've said in your word? Uh, Father, would you give us open ears to listen well to other people and how they understand what you've said in your word, that we might be strengthened by that exercise. So God, our fellowship um, is yours, uh, your people, and we pray that you would uh, work all things together for good for us who love you and are called according to your purpose. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.